This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Kia ora and welcome to Creatively Wired. This broadcast is on Free FM 89.0 and is also available wherever podcasts are found. Creatively Wired is a moment in time where we chat with artists about what makes them tick. We will explore the way they work, what they are thinking about, and the many varied nuances of the creative process. Make yourself comfortable and let's have a chat with some awesome people who are creatively wired. Kia ora everyone and welcome to another episode of Creatively Wired. Uh, my name is Jeremy and I'm joined once again by my co-host Paul Bradley. And today our guest is a spoken word poet and philosopher, deep thinker, um, hilarious joke maker and uh, all around good dude, Michael Moore. Uh, it's great to have you here with us today, Michael. Yeah, kura kura. Uh, yeah, great to be here. So um, do you want to tell us a little bit about like where you got your start as a poet? Uh, yeah, it was, um, it was a strange time. Uh, i just come out of playing a uh, lifetime of uh, rugby league. I uh, had an injury that kind of kept me at home for quite some time, I think uh, almost a year and a half. Um, the spine kind of swelled and I couldn't really move, so all I had was um, time to think and time to be with myself and with my thoughts, and that got a bit scary at times, so I thought that writing might be a really good way to kind of release some of those things. Uh, and, yeah, just kind of fell into poetry uh, while I was in that, that little hole. Had you listened to much poetry before, like, were you intrigued by it before you started writing it, or is it just yeah, a kind think, of spark of... I think the first time I ever read poetry was in primary school, part of the curriculum. Um, we read a poem uh, called Ozymandias, uh, and I thought, hey man, this is this is cool, I like this stuff, even against the grain of all my footy playing bros, eh? Yeah, um, and I was kind of, I mean, I stuck with it, I stuck with it um, through high school, and you know, fearlessly just did the poetry thing uh, amongst my friends. And uh, and then, yeah, after high school, there was a, just a bit of a lag there where I didn't get back to it. But um, but given the time and space, it popped up as a really great way of just <clears throat> releasing some of those, yeah, releasing some of those difficult thoughts during a difficult time. And so in processing those thoughts through words, when you were doing that initially, was the idea to... Just just for you, you like you were just kind of writing them down as a way of processing, or did you think I'm going to go out and perform these and see how they resonate with mm. people? Yeah, it was definitely a hindsight thing to see uh, how it benefited me um, in terms of my mental states at the time. Uh, but at the time, it was just just open release, just getting words out and then seeing what they look like. And um, I think back then. There was a website called poetry.com, and you could share your poetry with a community. So I did that quietly um, from the space and corners of my room for a little while and um, just got feedback around language, um, up my reading game, and, and <laughs> bought a few poetry books and just kind of went from there. Mm. And the um, <clears throat> So, uh, yeah, I'm interested in the creative aspect of that as well because mm. I can see that like, if you're in a bit of a dark place in your life, like 
you know, a lot of people might journal or something like that, which is not necessarily creative, although maybe a little bit, but choosing to go in fully into an art mm. form, was there an aspect of the kind of play and creativity that you were seeking at that time as well, or did, was it sort of not that conscious? Or? Uh, I think it was just awakening at the time. Um, and then I, yeah, and then I stumbled across slam poetry, which was competitive um, kind of stand-up uh, spoken word. Um, went down the Def Jam poetry lane like a lot of people do. I really enjoyed that style and thought, yeah, maybe this is a creative lane that I can kind of um, be a part of or fall into. Uh, and then I, I followed that kind of hunch or feeling up to Auckland where the South Auckland Poets Collective had a couple of open mics and there wasn't much else going on um, in terms of slam poetry or spoken word poetry that I could find online. Um, and then once I performed for the first time, yeah, the... There was definitely a, a vibe there that I was like, "Hey, this is a real. There's a real opportunity here for this to, um, for me to develop this here in terms of an art form and, and see what I can do." Mm, nice. Mm. So your first go performing was at one of those open mics. Yeah, I think it was up at um, uh, what do you call it? Must have been the Monaco Institute of Technology. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, and it was in one of the in the back rooms. Uh, it was called the Black Room, I think. And a, and a bunch of cool poets had, had shown up that night. There was um, back then that um, Brown Brother was going off on the internet from Joshua Eosefel, and he was there that night. And I thought, hey, yeah, this is there's a, there's a few cool folks here that are doing this thing. I, you know, I'd love to kind of try and jump in and be a part of that community. Mm. Mm. And what was it about slam poetry that really appealed to you? Uh, I think it was the. At the time, a lot of my poetry was more like open testimony of where I was at, I think. And I think the slam stage held a bit of room for that. Um, and then spoken word, obviously, after after the fact, really, really held space for that. And I notice it now when I work with young people that that's a real space for them to kind of share their testimony first up. And then you kind of fall into the art practice of the thing and the creative processes of the thing and, <clears throat> and going kind of beyond sharing just your story. But in the first instance, yeah, that, um, that component of being able to just share my story with other people in a safe space was really a massive part of why slam poetry really drew me in. Yeah, and um, I'm, I'm interested in that. Um, you mentioned, you know, working with young people as well because obviously mm. it's a, been a transformational um, uh, experience for you, writing and performing poetry. So then you went on to take that to young people as well as a way of, of them transforming themselves. Mm. Yeah, I became really aware of my writing process. And, um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> poetry has really given me the opportunity to grow into a bunch of different writing spaces, which is in, which included Indigenous storytelling as well, which meant that I kind of got to travel to Canada and Uluru and meet elders there and just listen to Indigenous storytelling. So that was a massive part of it, I think, um, in terms of reconnection to kind of core YO, uh, who am I, where am I from, uh, my relationship to the land, to my people, uh, and that I got so much healing out of that, um, as well as kind of understanding my own process, which sat really, I found, in the lane of Indigenous storytelling. Um, even though I grew up an urbanised Māori, disconnected from Te Ao Māori for so long, I felt like this was giving me a gateway back to that, who am I, where do I come from, um, and I knew that that would be a powerful thing for young people as well, particularly uh, 
um, connecting with young men who were disconnected in the same way that I was, uh, born urbanised, potentially making connections to other cultures, um, urban cultures that like hip-hop and things like that. Um, but I felt there was this kind of deep need to, to kind of bring them back to where we where we come from as young Māori or young Pacifica and really kind of contextualise that space as well. And so working with them has, has been magic. It's a real to-and-fro thing. Mm. Uh, so, I, you know, I think it's called the tuakana-tena dynamic, <clears throat> where you're sharing space and no one's really teaching. And when I work with young people, it's always kind of like that. Uh, mm. Their stories blow my mind. And then uh, <laughs> we get into the writing and... Um, and into the kind of creative crafting of things, and the, you know, by that point, if I've hit them with the power of connection, back to place and to um, people and, and whenua, uh, often they'll want to carry on into the kind of deeper creative art side of the writing um, to kind of figure out how to deepen those those ways into uh, into culture and, and things like that. Mm. Mm. Sounds amazing. And it, do you think there's something about that? Art form itself that allows them to be more vulnerable or to share that stuff that they might not otherwise do. What, what do you think? It sounds like there's something kind of yeah. magical happening there with the art <clears throat> form, rather than just a you know a bunch of people sitting around talking about life yeah. and experiences. <clears throat> yeah, and it's. It, I mean, sometimes it's hard to explain, but I think I've done a, f- a little bit of it now, so I might be able to articulate some of that space. Um, a lot of it is relating back to the practices of our tipuna, of our ancestors, around wānanga and coming together. Mm. So um, often I'll, I'll go outside the norm and do things in spaces where we're getting sensory overload, so outside, <laughs> um, in front of a fire, um, typical ways of how our tipuna used to kind of come together in wānanga. Uh, and I think um, part of it is, is myself as well. So I carry a story that's very relative to young men in, in the struggle. I grew up tough, grew up hard, and that's always uh, one of my first kind of points of connection is just putting my story out there. And often I'll say, um, when I sit down with people, I'm going to say, okay, I'm going to ask a lot of you today, <laughs> but um, anything I ask of you, I, I will give to you. Uh, and then I just start from that place, from a really personalised place. I think that life experience element is a really um, unique and kind of necessary way of engaging young people to share their stories. Um, yeah, you've got to give it up. <laughs> mm. You know, you've got, to, you've got to share that part of yourself with them. And um, I think when you do, uh, some of them will, will give it back. Mm. Mm. So the, you talk about kind of working through with young people the, the process of writing where do you start? Yeah, um, so I have, a f- I have a technique that I've been using for a while now and I can jump into it quite quickly myself and just quickly go through the process and then find words. Because um, in the beginning it was about the flash words and the stylistic rhymes and that kind of stuff. But I've faded away from that stuff. I love bringing it back in though, but for me it's about the message first. Uh, so I found a way to find a message and then come back and, and prettify that. <laughs> I'm making up words here, fam. <laughs> yeah, make that a little bit more, you know, um, pretty with the with the styles that I kind of um, came up with, which is and obviously heavily heavily influenced by hip hop myself and um, and rapping and uh, you know what that that lane as well. 
Um, sorry, what was the question again, Jerry? So, so, like, how do you start <clears throat> to write something? Like, what is? How mm. do you find that meaning? And yeah, how so do I, you explore that? I have a process, um, and it starts with a thing I call the poet tree, <laughs> which is a tree, my birthplace of poetry. Um, and on that tree, I'll put. Um, I remind myself that I have these three tools: experience, memories, and um, and people and relationships. And so on that tree, I'll, I'll um, this is the process kind of unfolded, in a, but I can do it like in a blink of an eye now. But on that tree, I'll put three very special people to me. They may have passed, they may have, they may have passed, they may be living now, they may be living in the future and be some young child that I want to meet in the future. Um, and then I'll put three memories on there that are really special to me because I think it's really important when it comes to healing and writing together is that we review our childhoods and that we review our memories because there's magic in the trauma. <laughs> um, and then just generally magic if there is no trauma. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and then uh, and then I, I put three experiences in there, but sometimes the kind of memories and experiences kind of sit in the same fold. Um, <clears throat> but I review them differently, so I, I look into the experiences for feeling and, uh, and emotion. Um, I look into the memories for kind of magic and, and solutions and answers. And then I look at my relationships with people for to look at the dynamic and say, well, what's really interesting about this dynamic with these people? So there's the tree, uh, and beneath the tree is the ground, obviously, and above the tree is the sky. Um, top leaf of the tree always sticks up. Akomato once said to me uh, that 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 top leaf of the tree is what sticks up into the metaphysical world, and that's why you're so good at metaphors. He reckons. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so um, so he's like, you've got one on top of your head, and so in the sky is where I put the ambiguous, abstract, floaty things like emotions, ways of being. So things like determination, love, uh, bravery, courage, and then I relate them to. The stories and things that I have on the tree. So, uh, but I'll, but I'll come back around for come back around and I'll add in the last piece. And then the last piece is what we what I kind of um, bury in the ground, which is what I can see in the world. So how I observe the world, I call that piece. So this is called the emotive sky, and uh, the poetry. And then this piece is called the observable world, uh, where I I literally you know go out into nature or even in this room, and I'll find things in this room and I'll and I'll jot them down. But I try to characterize them or personify them in a way that I can see it with more layers. So if I was outside, I might see the sun. This is a, a lengthy process, but, but I, can, <laughs> I can do it in a second. Mm. I might see the sun and I'll say, oh, you know, the sun is a glowing sun or the, or the trees are standing tall and ominous or the grasses, every blade of grass is whispering to its friend. And just try to give it more layers, more metaphor, more metaphysical representation. Let's go. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we've got these three things. So I have the observable world, the poetry, and the emotive sky. And then I combine those things together. So if I've got my mother on the tree, um, emotions in the sky, and um, the observable world in the dirt, I might say something like, my mother is a loving. So from the tree, my mother. From the sky is a loving. From the dirt, glowing sun. My mother is a loving, glowing sun. And this is how I create my own metaphors. And then I go from there. So I'll put that metaphor at the top of the page and then I'll dig into that. Like, what is that really, really saying? Mm. That's my process. Wow. 
It's such a clear format. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, yeah. 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 Did and you invent that the whole thing, or is that something that I you, did? Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I because I've got a messy mind as is, mm. so um, so I, I scribbled it up on my wall one day in a big pink uh, fluorescent uh, chalk pen. And then I, I just left it there for ages and was able to kind of just take the process in real quickly now and, and just kind of move through it. And in the space between the dirt and the earth is also where I, so that where the poetry exists, between the dirt and the earth, where, where our lives exist, <laughs> where we live, between the earth and sky, is also where I flood that space with um, the words that I use kind of in my life or the narrative that I tell myself or the, the words that are on my heart. Because what is um, life but the stories we tell ourselves? So in that space is where I, where I create my word bank as well. So I'll just add new words into there every now and then. Um, obviously in my head now and not on the wall. <laughs> and uh, and then yeah, and then use come back to those words because um, and use them in my writing because I know that that's come from a place of meaning like that's popped up into my life or into my reality. Mm. Mm. So are you kind of moving through life looking for little things or big things that can then be kind of brought into that yeah, into that framework? Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. And I kind of try to do it in a real organic way. So I think um, one of my lines in a poem is um, animated topography spreading over landscapes, and that's kind of how I see the world. So everything just kind of turns into into words. Mm. Um, but it's just, I mean, it's... I try to do it in a meaningful way so I don't just jump into a subject matter that I know nothing about. I try to meet the people and use that same process, you know, have experiences about the thing, meet the people, hold on to a few of the memories I've had about that subject matter. Um, how, how did I feel about that subject matter and then how did I observe it in the world kind of thing. So I use the process for heaps of different things. Mm. Mm. Yeah, so the power comes from a from your personal connection to the subject rather than just going, well, that's a powerful subject. Yeah. Like it actually yeah. has to have that force of your own um, lived experience behind yeah. it. Absolutely, yeah. Mm. And I think, um, you know, as you kind of get older, maybe, <laughs> or maybe a little bit wiser, or, you know, the heart kind of moves itself um, outside of my own experience into community. Um, and I'm still trying to figure out how to get it to grow out into environment in a way that's really meaningful as well. Um, I mean, there's the whole kaitiakitanga kind of connection and whenua connection of this place, but I've got friends who are so aware of the environment and they um, no plastic in their lives. You know, they eat <laughs> really well. And so um, writing about that stuff, I don't feel like I'm kind of the expert in that space yet, um, so I'm still spending a lot of time with those people. You know, you kind of go from... Well, from the micro to, to the macro, really. But but I'm trying to grow out into the macro in a really meaningful way, kind of step by step. Mm. And and not be ignorant to the fact that, um, yeah, I think this is what it is. For a long time, I've thought the poet and the person is this, are very different people. So a lot of people will engage me after a poetry show, and they'll be talking way up here, <laughs> like at a, at a level that I'm just like, what do you say? Because um, they they give you the intimate right off the bat, or the thing that they um, really want to talk about right off the bat. Um, and I used to think, oh, as a person, I can't manage that. But for some reason, when I was doing poetry in those spaces, I was I could capture what they were sharing with me. Um, yeah, what am I getting at there? But um, 
But now I'm trying to realise that actually, you know, I am the poet and I am the person. Like, that is, that is me. Like, I'm just on this uh, process of broadening my horizons, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to accept, you know, this good end of what poetry has kind of created for me and this um, version of self, you know, Mm. versus this other <laughs> you know this this other kind of vision of of the person that I thought that I was so that imposter syndrome kind of kicks <laughs> kicks in a lot you know because the poetry gets has me operating at a really meaningful level a lot mm. and I used to, I think man how can I keep operating at this really meaningful level in life so I would drop out and then just think that I was a totally different person but it's all one and the same thing and do you think that's um part of that is accepting a new kind of vulnerability in that space as well because I've often heard of actors saying oh it's easy to be on stage in character mm. but then it's once you are seen as yourself you know maybe doing a speech or engaging with people that's kind of a harder space to occupy because it's it's sort of like a mask kind of comes away I just wondered if that relates as well to what you're talking about where you know you could previously you could get on stage perform poetry and that was the poet mm. But then being that as a person maybe is a more vulnerable thing because you don't have that whole world of like stage, microphone, yeah, absolutely. poet persona. Absolutely. And because, you know, people, I think on stage, you know that um, people are watching you. Mm. You know, people are looking at you and <clears throat> it can be interpreted as a performance, I suppose. Mm. But to try to bring that over into life, you know, it's almost like a different set of eyes. <laughs> I'm not sure exactly what that means, but it's almost like a different way of seeing. Yeah, well, I'm making assumptions about what the audience is, <laughs> is seeing, but, but it's almost like you've got a different set of eyes on you. Maybe it's your own eyes, I'm not sure. I guess as well the, the on-stage stuff is rehearsed, whereas as soon as you're off stage, it's like, well, how do I have these conversations yeah, in yeah. an unrehearsed way? You know, we you have sort of le- yeah, in no, some ways less control over where it goes. Yeah, because sometimes we don't quite know what we're going to say or where the conversation's going to go or how people are going to interpret that. Yeah, nice. Yeah, and you don't kind of have to hit the with the perfection of what you've written on stage. Mm. You, you know, and you're not um, you're not prepped in that way. Mm. Um, it, it seems there's a large part of your process, and and I think it relates to this, which is around being present, like being. Mm connected and finding connection and um, encouraging connection through understanding and vulnerability and stuff. So is is that the part that becomes quite tricky all the time to be present? Yeah, that sounds really well put. Yeah, I think so, yeah. Um, Because is that... It's It's a... it's, it asks a lot of you to stay in that space, and people who do that will know, you know, like you've got to find some time to kind of either reset or recharge or find a really good balance and flow. And I think that's what I'm trying to do. I had a mate of mine who was like, I don't really recharge anymore, eh? I, I said to him, you know, just had a had a massive weekend kind of resetting and, and recharging, and he was like, yeah, I don't really reset anymore or recharge anymore. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, no, nah, I just feel like I'm in a nice nice kind of state of flow now um so i think i'm trying to figure that balance out for myself um because the performance is like 
zing, <laughs> that's it at its maximum. So it's some, you know, once I come away from the stage, there's got to be some kind of uh, opposite end kind of balance balance to that. Mm. Mm. I'm in interested to know more about um, in your journey of poetry, is there a kind of central question or idea that mm. has popped up the whole way through or or does it change and adapt based on the circumstance and the the output? I think it has kind of evolved in phases. Um, and you kind of smarten up to your own story after you've heard it a few times. You start, and, and particularly when you get feedback from other people, uh, which I think is a real critical part of that kind of exchange of, of performance and then feedback. Um, the message, I'm not sure if I've landed on the message, but I've moved through some really good ones, I reckon. Um, like, I think the very first one that came alive for me was that love is a real thing. <laughs> it was just epic because, like I said, I come from a really kind of rough upbringing and you can lose hope and, fa and faith in that thing. But um, being a father to two daughters and um, exploring poetry and those processes and then using them as a father was like a really epic kind of phase in that cycle as well. Um, I will say, though, that um, love is a real thing has stayed consistent. Like that sticks with me through every phase, and it just kind of gets more dimensions and contextualization. Um, uh, testimony kept coming back to me as a really powerful thing, and then I had to really honor that space with young people, particularly when I, uh, and not want to move them into the crafting of art and away from testimony, because it's like, you hear so many of them, you're like, <clears throat> oh. You know, like, let's move on, <laughs> let's move on kind of thing. But actually, you've really got to honour that space because this is you, I was there, you know, like, and I wasn't a young, as vulnerable as a young person doing it. I was kind of old enough to, to kind of make up my own mind and, and jump into the space. So, um, yeah, that keeps coming back to me. Uh, and then I suppose, you know, because of my role <laughs> in this work as well, around how creativity and art can really affect and change people's lives um, and, and the kind of constant practice of and the craftsmanship of an art form. Uh, and now I'm in a space where I'm like inspiration versus craftsmanship. <laughs> so I don't need it. I'm trying to no longer um, work in a space where I always have to be inspired and working from a place of actually I, I want to craft this art form and, and keep doing the work. And I'm getting really kind of, you know, a really cool set of benefits out of that as well. Um, that actually work, <laughs> that, that actually work and feed inspiration just by continuing to do the thing. Mm. Mm. So is that, <clears throat> do you mean like not necessarily waiting around for the inspiration before you start writing, but... Yeah. Start writing to create the inspiration kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, mm. I, I mean, I'm not even looking for inspiration when I start writing, but sometimes it'll just pop up. Mm. Um, and kind of that's the beauty of um, craftsmanship, but it's also teaching me things around discipline, discipline in my life mm. uh, and, and how to really kind of, I guess, strategize around 
uh, my, some of my creative processes and how I create and making sure that I stay diligent and industrious in the art form. Mm. Uh, and then it just obviously it adds more skills to, what, to the skills that I can share and, and give out and teach. Mm. So do you write every day or every week? Or yeah, I try to write every day. Mm. Um, and then I have a process where I just will throw it out to the world on Instagram because I still think that feedback thing's really that feedback loop can be quite a powerful thing. Um, so if I feel like the message is is something that I want to I want to gain more knowledge about, I'll, I'll throw that out onto Instagram and see what people think. Um, and it can be a raw bit of writing, like nothing, not a finished product, but I don't I don't mind because I still like to get the feedback around the message. Mm. Mm. And I've got a, a small following there of people that kind of aware that I'm doing that so they'll, they'll often give feedback and mm, I think that's a really important part of growing as an artist as well as sharing your work mm. yeah mm. yeah and 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 you know, being a poet and lots of other art forms are quite solitary pursuits as well mm. so it makes sense to look for ways that you can create community around that and share your work and get feedback and be part of that yeah absolutely. broader space yeah, I'm interested to know more about the indigenous storytelling. Um, partly your own kind of emergence of that in your practice, coming from a history as an urbanised Māori, but also how that was changed or illuminated mm. by the experience in, in Banff and other places. Yeah, so I suppose before Banff, it was the garage at my bro's place, <laughs> you know, or, or another bro's place, or another bro's place, and now that I was looking with kind of the, um, meta looking for metaphysical metaphors and everything, I was finding it in my friends who were just sitting right under my nose, and realising, man, my friends are so deep and uh, extreme knowledge holders. In fact, I think everybody is, if you spend enough time with them. <laughs> um, and so I would sit with my friends and just kind of listen to their experiences of being urbanised and then coming back into Te Ao Māori, whether they were studying real Māori or just kind of ad hoc bringing in uh, Mātauranga Māori into their lives. And then they would give me words from Te Ao Māori that were just, and I could sit on the magic of that one word for so long. Uh, they give me the breakdown of of, thing, of words like wairua or mana or uh, you know, or just just kind of other Maturanga Maori words that were just incredible. And I think because I had developed a love for language, um, learning about words like like wairua and so on, um, it, it it was a really cool gateway into uh, coming back to Te Ao Maori for me. I was. I think I, my whole life. I think I was just looking for an opportunity anyway, to kind of come back to it. I just felt really disconnected from it, and I was always kind of stuck in between a rock and a hard place. Uh, in that in that regard, being urbanised and kind of not sure where I stood. Um, but that's the whole thing around Hangatira Tanga. You just plant your feet, and away you go. <laughs> uh, and then yeah, and then so my writing started to take on these aspects of um, twin tongue. You know, um, uh, real real Pakia and, and then real Maori as well, and and the I think the mindset just kind of changes with it 
as you kind of deepen your understanding of Māori reo, you, your mindset or worldview kind of shifts into that space. And then obviously my oldest daughter is fluent in te reo Māori, so she saw this happening in me and really began to encourage um, conversation with her um, in te reo Māori. Uh, and because I knew these words intimately, she would just say them like in everyday conversation. And I used to just think, wow, she's, she's just saying these words <laughs> like they're just a part of her life now, you know, and I've come to them in my 30s. And um, she'll say, you know, like she'll, she'll, she'll say to me when she's feeling good or she'll say that she's feeling toe or, you know, whakatau or, or pai or pai mana. And these are words that I've experienced at a real high level <laughs> uh, way in terms of um, writing. Uh, and in terms of meaning of the word, but she just has them in her vocabulary, like in her life. And I think about the resonant tones of those words, you know, I think about what it's doing to the way she shapes her words in her mouth and the way it hits the back of her throat, and I'm thinking, she's getting all of this goodness <laughs> saying these words. And so, uh, yeah, so worldview's changing, and I um, just threw a dream application out there to, to Banff, not thinking it would come back, come back around, and then they sent... A response back saying that the application was successful, and I was like, "Well, I better try and raise some money to get over there." Um, thank you, boosted. Uh, and then, yeah, I, mean, I headed over there, and there was so much from day one. There was just so much um, correlation, so much, par so many parallels with culture, with the way that we speak to our tipuna, and we actively make. You know the spirit and the spirit of our tupuna alive and a reality that we can use and go to for healing and for other things and for tapping into deeper memories and and skills as well that existed with you know my ancestors. So you know I found out while I was in Banff. Um, oh, sorry, just a little bit before Banff that my grandmother was a writer uh, and that my mum had written a book which is hilarious because I talk to my mum about writing all the time, but not once has she mentioned writing this book until a cousin told me that, oh, yeah, how's your mum's book? And <laughs> Just the humility of that woman, eh? Amazing. <laughs> so she had written the book, and my grandmother had written this poem, so I got the poem um, to hold on to and have, and I use it often now when I perform, just as a way of holding space and keeping me safe. Um, but, yeah, in Banff... Uh, and we meet two Cree elders on the, I think, the very first day. Um, I'm, I'm, a man and a, I would say a man and a woman, but they might not say <laughs> they might not say that because they were just moving between ways of being. It was insane. Um, and then the depth of storytelling that they had in relationship to nature just just blew my mind and really enlivened my heart and my whole spirit um, because. I realized that what they were saying to me in English is is what I hear in Māori, but I don't fully quite understand yet. Um, so when people are doing um, mihi or speaking or doing whaikōrero on the ati at the marae, um, they're saying some holy moly stuff that I just want to um, kind of, that that's where I want my learning to kind of take me. Uh, but I was able to experience like, it in a way in Banff that was in English through these elders that just made me think, wow, that's so special what we have in Te Ao Māori. 
or what we have, what, what indigenous cultures hold in terms of language and storytelling, because that was the thing, right? Like that was the thing that where they put all the knowledge was in story and myth and legend, um, and to hear those stories, those real ancient stories, um, and the messages and the things about connection, um, the things about knowing yourself. I realise, you know, that obviously that was the beginning of my writing journey, and that my that's where I started it was around Kawaii connection connection to the whenua, reconnecting back with my people. Um, and then, yeah, it just kind of hit me in Banff in a real powerful way that, oh, actually, this is probably more of what I'm doing with my writing. Uh, and, and it's hit me in such a powerful way that the only thing I feel like I, I should do with this blessing and lesson is share it. Mm. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> That's powerful. And as a way of both understanding yourself, but also that wider whakapapa and, and, and connection to everything and everyone. And yeah, that's, that's powerful. Yeah, it was. <laughs> it was uh, it was real mould shattering, I think. Um, but it was a necessary kind of breaking of, of ego, yep, uh, definitely. But also of just kind of ideas that I kind of held on to that were keeping me from really jumping into to what it meant to be a young Māori man and also taking up my place in my family. Um, so going back to the marae and finding out how I can contribute and actually moving and, and doing the <laughs> doing the things that um, will help my family and, and hapu, whānau and iwi. Mm. Mm. It seems like, um, you know, listening to you talk about um, your poetry and a lot of these ideas it sounds like a very spiritual journey mm. and what I'm wondering as you speak is are you just naturally on this quite spiritual journey and you know understanding self whakapapa the wider world you talk about the natural world and then poetry is a good place to channel those thoughts mm. or is the is your interest in poetry driving that development as well you know or is it all just part of the same thing that is it's the yeah yeah um i think yeah poetry was definitely the gateway into into that kind of self-actualization self-realization stuff um <clears throat> and i have the same it's like of all the realities in the world um there is the there is you may as well pick a good one <laughs> So that's kind of the way I, I flow or kind of the way I think. If it's good for me, I'll just try that. I'll try that lane no matter how kind of insane it's, <laughs> it seems. If I feel like it's good for me, I'll try that thing. And um, poetry just kept providing in terms of growing as a person, so I keep going back to it. Uh, not in a, And if I do keep going back to it it's, and I feel like I'm extracting from it to honour poetry, I make sure that I share that. Mm. Whatever I take, I share, and then I obviously try to write things. <laughs> so I, I really see it as a sacred space, um, and I really try to honour it. And not, I've made a, I've made enough mistakes in my life in other places, you know, that I really want to honour this thing that's been gifting me so much. Uh, I remember flying into America, and I thought to myself, "Man, how did I get here?" 
like, how did I get on this plane to, to stop into America and then over to Banff? Because I always wanted to go to America. Um, and then I remembered, oh, yeah, I opened my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> and it's such a, so for me, it's a really sacred thing, um, particularly when, we get, when I dig deeper into the indigenous storytelling stuff, mm. uh, which is where I feel like, and again, um, analogy or metaphor, but when it comes to indigenous storytelling, I feel like a very little baby just crawling around inside the heart, making sounds at what I see. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, yeah. Like I'm not a, I'm no expert, but I'm, but I'm loving the journey. Mm. Mm. And that openness and curiosity seems to be the, you know, the big driver. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I think it's not an active kind of seeking out of development of spirit. I just do the poetry and I allow those things to kind of unfold or. Or just be open to the experiences. Mm. Mm. When it comes to um, commission, commissioned work, um, someone you're speaking at an event or something, and someone asked you to write a poem on a specific topic that may not have been one that you would have naturally written about. Mm. Is there a difference in your process there? So, uh, for example, the the Burn Street Art poem that you did last year um, does that process sit differently to everything else or is it the same thing mm, yeah I think I still I still filter it through the same process but it has different things that fall out of it so I like in the Boone poem for example I draw on a lot of my childhood experiences growing up in, um, in D Block in Dinsdale and um, <clears throat> how out of my friends I was often the one who would stop and look at street art. Experience, memory, emotion, I'm observing the street art. So I'll still use the same process. And um, then I was like, man, what, what was I feeling in those moments? And then the, the poem for Boone really built from a very specific moment when I was looking at street art as a young person or as a, as a, as a youth on my way to footy training. I took, a, I took a moment to stop and look at this bombing that was in, um, it was in Frankton, under the Blue Bridge, down where the Carlton's Fish and Chip, chip Shop used to be. It was an epic mural, like on the side of the wall. Um, and I remember, so it's the memory, yes, but I'm also informed by kind of my intelligence now. So I take that back to the memory and look at it again. And I'm looking at the wall and I'm just thinking, man, this does something to the landscape here. It's like if you can't get plants and forests and birds and bees into a city landscape, this is the next best thing. And that I built the poem off that idea. Mm. And so there's lines in the poem where I'm talking about kind of um, a natural partnership or permaculture between street art and city landscapes. And for me, that still sits in the vein of like Aotearoa of the Treaty of Waitangi, of duality, of our cultures weaving ourselves together. So I'm still getting a lot of the things, or I'm still coming back to a lot of the things that I believe. So it was a poem about Boone Street Art, but it still had a lot of my kind of system and values and, and beliefs embedded in it. Mm. And I still use the same creative process here. I think one of the things that really struck me as well is that you were, as a storyteller, you were able to see the storytelling in those artworks as well. Which I think sometimes passes other people by, but you, you know, that seems to be your natural interest 
as a creative person is like yeah, what are the stories that are happening here whether that's in a in a painted mural or in a landscape or in a person's life or whatever it's like. Absolutely, Where yeah. do the stories lie? So the, um, the process started with the memory, doing the thing, looking at the memory in my mind, but then I was like, but I've actually got these paintings everywhere. Like I can physically go to them and have the same experience and just sit in front of them. So I, I grabbed a lime scooter and went to every Boone, um, Boone painting, street, street art and mural throughout the city and just sat there and wrote some notes and looked at them and just kind of went through the same process again and peeled away some of the layers of what I thought it meant. And They're all magic. I mean, they were all there. An artist doesn't just throw a thing up there for nothing, you know, like it's got messages and meaning, so I really tried hard to kind of look and find what they were. It seems also like that unpacking of process is like a way to time travel like you can sit between let's go all kind of different moments <laughs> in yeah, one yeah. time so you you yeah it's some sort of quantum being that exists yeah. in the past and the future and the present at the same time yeah should we play with that for a bit yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 definitely. no definitely that's kind of i i um i was just saying to my mates um last night with this guy had put up something very crack up about kind of past present and and future. Um, and I said to my mates, kind of, we're in a where, where does a circle begin? And they're pretty clever, so they had some hilarious responses. But the answer is that um, anywhere on the circumference. Mm -hmm. So we kept talking about, uh, in this video, the guy's talking about a future self and a past self and a present self. But I was like, but where, where does the present begin? Like, which one is present? This is yeah. <laughs> this is semi-expensive, but but um but but to be truthful, my thinking is that the present is the sum of the thing, the whole circle, um, and that and that in the present, what I what I want to know about the past or what I want to know about the future is dependent on how much I can light up and extend that light from myself backwards or forwards or upwards or down. So it's dependent on how much I'm shining right now because <laughs> the light from me will go to those places. Mm -hmm. The light from me will go forward, it will go backwards and it will light up a potential future or light up a, an old memory. So, yeah, so everything is happening in that moment that I'm sitting and looking at the at the at the Boone Street murals or everything is happening in that moment. If you have that strength of presence, mm -hmm. you can take control of where those, where you travel, I guess, where you time travel. Yeah. Mm. I like that because I think often <clears throat> when people talk about being present, they think about it as a, being in a moment that's divorced from past and future. But I think actually being present is acknowledging that, you know, that it's built out of the past and that it is also the seeds for the future totally like, but it's yeah. it's it's like intimately you, connected with both all of those spaces it's like if you had two um iphone jacks and you just plug them <laughs> plug them into the future of the past then <laughs> the present self just gets completely lit up yeah nice <laughs> um another thing that i've noticed about your work recently is a a growth in collaboration with other art forms um, what what does that do for you as a creative? Blows my mind, eh? It's it's amazing, um, and I've learned that 
again, you've got to honor every space. So I tried to, just recently I tried to write some bars for a mate, um, and I realized, man, this is really hard to write to music. Uh, so take your time. <laughs> you know, like I'm not going to get it the first go. I've got to respect those two art forms in the way that I have poetry as well. Um, but I want to, you know, I want to, because I love the nature of language and words. Um, and to me, sound is just like the grandfather or grandmother of words anyway. <laughs> and they've got a natural relationship um, that just strengthens each other. Uh, <clears throat> and then and then obviously working with uh, Mikey Sorensen, um, and, and he was dancing to the words. It was just... Um, some of it I can't exp <laughs> explain because it was just really uh, emotional and epic. But, um, yeah, uh, yeah, and again, with the dancing, you know, it was about really honouring his story. Um, and again, it's a very similar process. What are the What am I looking at here? What are the layers? What is the story that Mikey wanted to tell? Um, and what is the story that this music is <laughs> is telling? Um, I was lucky in the instance with you, Jeremy, where you um, had heard the poem and then you just, I mean, you just put the music in there in like five seconds. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, yeah, but I suppose, yeah, it's about honouring the spaces of those other art forms as well and, and knowing that, um, that I, well, I suppose, I suppose it was a little bit different with um, writing those bars But when an, I mean, like when an expert of their craft brings their thing to you, it can also almost be very like easy, mm -hmm. like just to to work with that person, like because they're ready and you're like basically speaking the same language, but but different art forms, and it's like how do we so for for example, like live on stage collab <laughs> collaborating on stage in the moment. Um, with yourself um, doing our soundscapes and um, Horomono doing Tangaporo and then obviously Regan painting behind us um, and then collaborating like live on stage um, with Spoken Mood as well. That was just a really natural process because everybody was just there. We had kind of done a little bit of um, talking about what we kind of <laughs> wanted the story to be and then we just kind of kept bouncing off each other in terms of I guess our level of um, expertise, I guess I could say, um, and then our ability to want to collaborate in that space as well. Like, there has to be that. Like, you've got to want to collaborate. So on a very, like, on a whole other level, a whole other thing, a whole bunch of other things drop away as well. Like, you know, wanting to be the best in the space or wanting to own the space, all those things kind of drop away and you're kind of fixed on this how do we make this the sum of this thing really great? How do we make this collaboration really great? Because I've worked in other spaces as well where it, was, where it just seemed to be very competitive and there was a lot of mm. just well, clashing. Slam poetry is by nature competitive. Yeah, that's right, yeah. So yeah. I've, moved, I've moved away a little bit from slam, slam poetry in terms of um, competing myself just because I think my poetry is taking me on another journey. But I still um, support with kind of New Zealand poetry slam and things like that because um, I think it's a great way for people to enter into the poetry space. Yeah, actually, thinking about that, I wondered whether that the competitive nature of slam poetry was interesting to you, given your sports 
background, like sports, sports, sports. As a as a way of bridging that gap between <laughs> sport and this kind of pure mm, metaphysical yeah. art form. Can we just have one conversation without sports, please? <laughs> <laughs> that could be a strange conversation, yeah, yeah, given, yeah. given the people in the room. Yeah. No, yeah, I mean, yeah, definitely. Um, so my mind was still operating in that level of, oh, okay, this is a, I can make this a competitive thing. That's better. You know, yeah. it's even better. I can win. Yeah, yeah. But but I think being schooled in poetry versus losing a game of footy was just a whole other level of getting schooled. Yeah. It was like, wow, there's so much to learn. <laughs> there's so much to learn here. But but in saying that, that I look back on some of my sports days and some of those moments of loss or whatever were really also huge in my kind of personal development and growth as a person. So, yeah, I don't mm. completely... Yeah. yeah, and the and yeah. just 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 to keep talking about sports for a little while. Yeah. <laughs> the the sports were obviously playing rugby league was also collaborative as well, right? Totally, as yeah. well as competitive. So it's got all of those aspects in it. Yeah, and I, I mean, I personally believe there's a lot of art and and what people do on the field and stuff as well. Like it's you know, particularly the flair and kind of um, the style that we play here in Aotearoa is very. Yeah, it's, it's very showman, it's very kind of performance footy. So, mm. I mean, I, I, I literally know almost nothing about sports, mm. but it, it, I do. <laughs> I am drawing out this conversation about sports. But it, it, it does seem to me often that the, in any field, whether it's sports or business or anything, that the, often what separates the people at the kind of peak of that field is creativity. You know, you can learn to run, run yeah, down absolutely. a field with a ball and and you can, you know, do whatever it takes to become a good league player. But I imagine that the creativity is often what sets those sort of star players apart. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm. The ability to kind of just flow when, it, when you need to. Um, <clears throat> I mean, there's the accountants of the games and stuff as well. They do really well in the sport. But when they're faced with a team that's being really creative on the day, that team or the team, that strategic team with all their tactics will struggle to beat the team that's just throwing the ball around creatively and, and, and making it stick. Mm. Mm. So <clears throat> we've talked a lot about the kind of flow of things and, and how stuff um, emerges and, and things that are firing on all cylinders. Is there ever a time where creative practice is hard? Like, w w what is that like? Mm. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, when I feel squeezed for time, and then I have to remind myself that time isn't a real thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but um, when I feel squeezed for time, then I'm struggling. Um, or if I'm kind of overloaded upstairs in my in my head, it's it's difficult to kind of make poetry happen. Uh, and then there's times where I just where it's where I don't need it at all, and that is usually when I'm with my daughters on the weekends where I'm getting all the love I need. So, <laughs> so I don't need the love of poetry. I don't need the the kind of sacredness of poetry. I just I'm totally present with my with my children. So um, it's obviously hard to write <laughs> at that point. But do you but yeah. have, do you have any techniques that you use when you're getting stuck in your head and and things aren't happening? Yeah, um, <clears throat> someone put it really well the other day. She put. Um, Wandering and wondering is the thing that I do. So just aimlessly kind of, not aimlessly, but maybe a walk, go for a walk in the in the bush or even just 
if I'm at home and it's raining, I think like in, during lockdown, where I, where I was able to kind of get really creative, I would just pace up and down my hallway and just kind of, maybe pace is not the word, right word, but I'd just kind of neander um, up and down my hallway and just and just kind of clear the head that way. Moving, um, moving is really important when you're stuck mentally. I find that if I'm moving physically, you know, it'll start to... Or, or having a shower, that uh, sensory deprivation puts the body in autopilot so I can start to dismantle the kind of noise in my head. Mm. Mm. Or just putting pen to paper and just writing something. <clears throat> um, anything, like any words. Because then I can just start to extract and take some of that storm out of my mind and just, just throw it down on the paper. Cool. So getting that movement happening, even if the words going down aren't aren't actual poetry or if you're not, you know. I mean, maybe yeah, it's better right, sometimes yeah. if they're not actually poetry. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah and, and doodling is another thing as well. I saw you wriggling your hand around. Oh, yeah, yeah. Doodle, doodle shapes. Doodling's another thing as well. But I'll end up kind of forming them into words. But Cool. Um, we're coming to the end of the time. Um, is there any kind of, what's the, what's the next thing for you? What, what's the next project you're working on? Um, I think I really want to do uh, kind of um, augmented spoken word live experience, augmented reality kind of spoken word live experience and, and kind of bring words to the stage or in a way that I think is, or is it in as many possible ways as words can be presented on, st on stage, um, you know, whether visual, through sound, through word, through music. Uh, and just and just have this totally overwhelming experience around the kind of the capability and power of words. Epic. And if people want to check out your poetry and things online, Instagram's the best place for that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And 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 I love it when people kind of you know feedback and. And and what are people looking for to find you on Instagram? Wizard of Megos. Sweet. Which is obvious an obvious play on words there. Yeah. My original. Uh, Instagram handle is Megos85, I think. So, yeah, these are the wizards of that guy. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Thanks for being here. It's uh, such a great chat. Awesome. awesome. Uh, thanks. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. Thank you for joining us. This show has been broadcast on Free FM 89.0 and is brought to you by Creative Waikato. Have a great day. For more episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio or Apple Podcasts. This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.